Um, hey, if you've got your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, it's almost halfway through your Old Testament. If you want to use one of the Bibles around the room, page 198, or if you use something uh, like the Version app. This morning, I want to talk to you about the message that you're communicating with your life. All right, because whether you realize it or not, every single one of us is communicating a message in the way that we live our lives day to day here on the earth. Like, think about it like this. Like, the way that you love your wife or the way that you love your husband is communicating a message about what's most important to you. The way you treat your kids, uh, uh, your parents, the way you teach, uh, treat your, your teachers or, or people in authority uh, above you, uh, the way you operate in your job right now, the way you lead, your, your level of generosity uh, towards uh, others, your, your outlook on life, the, w- the way you live out your faith in God, whether you're intentional uh, or unintentional about it, the way you live your life is communicating a message about what is most important to you. And God, we know this, we believe this, he loves us. Uh, he cares for us, he loves us like crazy, and he wants to help us, and he desires to lead us every day of our lives so that we can make a difference for him here in this world and so that we can together Uh, help other people find their way back to God. Let's pray as we're uh, getting started this morning. God, we pray uh, and just ask, Lord, we believe your presence is here with us today. We thank you for this time of worship, Lord, and we're just asking right now that you would teach us. Uh, As we look to your word right now, that you would encourage us. You know every person, you know every life, you know every story and question and every circumstance here today, and we just invite you Uh, to work in us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to share today, and I pray that you would use these words, Lord, to bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you are new with us today, we're in the third week of just a four-week series looking at the life of David, uh, often known as King David. And over these four weeks, we're certainly not going to cover every detail of his life, but we're trying to touch on some of the highlights here. And he's often known by King David as he's considered to be one of the greatest kings that ever ruled in all of Israel. And again, we've been examining some of these highlights these past couple of weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, Kevin kicked off this series uh, looking at the story of Samuel. Samuel and how Samuel the priest came to the family of Jesse and he anointed David. Many believe he was around 12 years of age at the time to be the next king of Israel, which was a little bit of a problem, and that is that Israel already had a king. They had a king and and King Saul, and so this is going to create some tension and conflict in Israel and specifically between Saul and David because even though David has been anointed as the next king, he will not take the throne for some 20 years. And so, again, there's going to be some tension. There's going to be some conflict between the two of them. Last week, uh, Ben, with Ben, we looked at the story, the well-known story of David and Goliath and uh, David's victory over this Philistine giant in Goliath. And what's crazy about this story is that David was just a teenager. Uh, Many historians believe he was around the age of 15, maybe 16 or 17 years of age. And so he wasn't old enough to enlist in the army, all right, but God's going to use him to bring down the enemy's great giant in Goliath. And with this victory, King Saul realized that David was invaluable to him and really to the whole nation of Israel. In fact, look at what 1 Samuel 18 records for us, starting in verse 2. The writer says, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his home or his family. Whatever, if you skip over to verse 5, whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers 
as well. And so for the next seven years, life was pretty good for David in the palace, serving at Saul's side, but things are going to change. And these next few verses give some indication why. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And so Paul, uh, the, these people are like, you know, Saul's great, he's good and all, but David's the stuff, right? All right, David, all right, is the new hero in the land. And so David's growing popularity is going to lead to Saul be- to become uh, insanely jealous of David. And believe it or not, it gets to the point that Saul not only tried to kill David on a few occasions, but he eventually ordered all of Israel's army to join him on a nationwide manhunt, all right, for this fugitive in David. And so part of the reason why we've called this series On the Run is because David's going to spend a lot of his life on the run. And this is really going to initiate it. In fact, these next eight years, all right, that we find some of in scriptures are really just an indication of of David running for his life from Saul, fleeing for his life. And while these would be chaotic days in the life of David, let's not forget, and as we discovered a couple of weeks ago, that this David was a man after God's own heart, all right, that... That's how the scriptures speak of him. That's how God spoke of him. He was a man after God's own heart. And so for David, every day of his life was another day of running, but also learning to trust God. That even as he was running, even as he was fleeing, God was using these days to shape his faith. In spite of all the drama, in spite of all the chaos, like the, you know, God was using this to, to, to shape him as, as a person. And the more that David ran, the more people looked to him and the more people sought him out as a leader. And so with this in mind, I, I just want to ask this question as we're getting started here this morning, especially as we consider this, this chaos that David encountered, but the willingness of people to follow him and to look to him. And so the question is just, what what drew people to David? Like, what was it about David? What was it about his life that compelled others to look to him and to the point that they'd be willing to follow him? So here's the thing. David was communicating a message with his life. He was communicating something very powerful with his life and in his life on the good days, all right, but in the bad days as well. And because of it, the Lord was giving him more and more influence And again, people were following him because of it. But it wasn't easy for David, all right? It wasn't easy for him. He never asked to be king. And the only reason he fought Goliath is because no one else was willing to do so. And so once the hero, once the champion, he's now on the run for his life. In fact, if you keep reading David's story, it's going to get so bad for him that David's going to flee to Philistine territory. You're going to flee from Saul, go hide where the enemies are located. And he's going to go down to this place called Gath, which guess what? That was the hometown of Goliath, all right? You killed the giant, and now you're going to go hide in his family's backyard. And so that's where David is. Well, it wasn't long before the Philistines figured out who David was, which meant that David was on the run again. But in 1 Samuel 22, we learn that he finally found refuge in a cave of all places. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1. The writer says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to meet him there. Now, just to give you some perspective, here's a map. 
just an illustrated map of Israel. And uh, this is kind of the central portion of Israel, but you see a dulem uh, on the map there. And a dulem is located uh, in the Judean wilderness, but on the border, really, of Philistine territory. And the Philistine territory uh, was in the plains on the far left of the map along the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the Philistines were located, all right? But David's kind of in the no-fly zone, all right? He's in the Judean wilderness, really in between Israel and, or at least occupied Israel for the day in this Philistine territory. Here's a, a picture of this area. I went to Israel last uh, spring, and here's a picture of some time that we spent in the wilderness. Next slide here, Kyle, Uh, of the Judean wilderness. And we spent a couple of hours one day uh, walking in the wilderness. Interestingly enough, there are two Hebrew words for wilderness. There's the Hebrew word yeshimon, all right? And the yeshimon is, is, is defined as a devastating wilderness, that there is no life in it. And much of southern Israel is very hot, it's very dry. It's the yeshimon of Israel. This is known as the midbar of Israel. It's also the wilderness, but it, while difficult land, you can find life in it. And so the teachers used to teach around these two words, the midbar, the yeshimon. This is the midbar, the Judean wilderness. This is a dulem. This is where David is hiding with these men. And by the time David took refuge in Adullam, he was really hurting, all right? He had lost most of everything. He had no security, no food. He had no hope, all right, that anything was going to change, all right? He didn't know the rest of the story. We get to read the rest of it. David didn't. He's living in it. And, and so this was the lowest moment, really, of his life to date. And if you want to know how he really felt, just look at, well, look at the Psalms, but particularly look at Psalm 142. Maybe check that out later today. Uh, just listen to some of these words. David, many believe, wrote these words from this cave at Adullam. Psalm 142, I cry out to the Lord. Uh, I pour out before him my complaint, before him I tell my trouble. Uh, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me. He says, set me free from my prison. And if you caught those words there, his brothers and his father came to him, maybe to comfort David, but maybe they're fleeing for their lives too because they're associated with David. But it wasn't just David's family that gathered in this cave. Check this out, verse 2. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. See, King Saul's reign uh, affected everyone, all right, in a very difficult way. It was tough on everybody. He overtaxed the people. He mistreated people. He was a madman, really. And so many people were hurting under Saul. And so there were many that had fleed to this cave, fled to this cave. And so David is, he's in a cave full of malcontents, all right? He's got 400 people around them that have got problems. And I don't know about you, but if I'm David, I'm probably already a little overwhelmed by my own problems. And now I've got 400 others who have problems as well. 400 to be exact, but look again what the text says about David and his influence with this crowd. It says, he became their commander. That's interesting. See, here's what David didn't realize at first, but I think eventually would. God's going to use this very difficult season in his life. God's going to use it. He's going to use this very cave in these difficult days and these difficult people to shape his faith, his leadership, and increases influence. And so back to the question I asked a few minutes ago, what was it about David's life that drew people to him? Well, we don't know for sure. We we can only wonder these things, but I wonder if it had something to do with David's willingness, his obedience, really, to serve God right where he was. 
And if you're taking notes today, I just encourage you to write that down, that David was faithful in serving God right where he was, right where the Lord had him, even when he was running for his life, hiding in a cave. Like, think about it. This is the future king. He's not influencing from the palace right now. He's influencing from a stinky, dark cave. And when David arrived at this cave, he had no one to turn to, no one except God. He was on the run for sure, but even on the run, notice that he just kept running after God. This is the pattern of David's life, turning to God, running after God. All right, he just kept pursuing God. And while Psalm 142 highlights the difficulty, the pain on arriving at the cave, it was from that same cave that many people believe that David also wrote Psalm chapter 34, where he wrote these words in verses 8 and 9, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. See, what message was David communicating with his life? He was determined to trust God in the good and in the bad, and he's learning an important lesson here about serving God right where he is, no matter the circumstances. You know, maybe this is a good time for you and I to stop and ask ourselves a similar question. You know, maybe how, how can we follow David's example? Like, how, how can you be faithful and serve God right where you are? Maybe some of you today find yourself in a really difficult marriage or in a difficult relationship right now. Maybe something that's, well, it's less than satisfying for sure. Uh, maybe you're single and, and you don't want to be. Maybe you've, maybe you've got some dreams of where you'd like to be when it comes to things like your career and what you'd like to be doing, but right now you're as far from those dreams as you've ever been. Or maybe you just say, you know what, I'm in a place in my life right now that if I had, well, a, a cave, a cave suits well. Yeah, that, that's where I am. I'm in a cave. I'm in a pretty desperate place in my life. Here's the thing. Imagine the influence that you and I, the potential, the influence that we could have with others if we were willing to say, you know, no matter what, no matter what I go through, I'm going to serve God right where I am. No matter the job that you're in right now, no, uh, as you turn, return to school this week or maybe even later this month or, or with the people that God has put in your life. See, here's the thing. People don't just end up in your life on accident. They don't end up in your life on accident. So there's a really good chance that you've got people in your neighborhood right now. There's a really good chance you've got people at work or in your classroom or on your campus right now, and God has them in your life for a reason. That's what our Multiply Workshop is all about, is just helping you and I realize that God is putting people around us, and he wants to use us, all right? He has called you. He wants to use you to serve others, to lead others to Christ, to help others grow in their faith. He's called every single one of us to be kingdom workers. And what if, like David, God could use us in such a way that we might be able to help others taste and see that the Lord is good? See, this group of 400 is going to follow David, and they will become his army, and this army is eventually going to grow to 600 people, and David will lead them, and he's going to influence them, and he's going to model for them what trusting God looks like. But the story doesn't end there, because David and these men will eventually be discovered, they'll be found out, and it won't be long, all right, before they're on the run again, all right, fleeing for their lives. And this time, David and his men are going to run and hide in a place called En Gedi. Now, check the map out here again. If you see a dulem at the center of the map, En Gedi uh, is located here to the south, kind of the southeast near the Dead Sea, all right? And uh, just to give you a picture of what that area looks like, uh, this is a picture that I had taken from Masada, 
And Masada is about 12 miles south of En Gedi, all right? It's about 12 miles to the north end on the shores of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea sits at 1,300 feet below sea level, all right? It's 35% salt content, which the Atlantic Ocean, by comparison, I think is around 6 to 7%, all right, salt level. And so it's hot, all right? It's very hot. It's very dry, all right? This is where David and his men have fled. And if you check out this next picture, this is En Gedi, all right? And this is the opening uh, in the mountains, kind of this canyon area looking back at the Dead Sea. And you can hike back into En Gedi. And if you get back far enough, well, when you get to the end, there's an oasis there. And uh, David spent a lot of time. This is kind of his safe place. This was his stronghold to go and hide and in in Gedi, all right? And again, the Lord had provided for him there in this place. Well, you can pick up this story in 1 Samuel 24. Let me just summarize it for you briefly. David and his men uh, flee to in Gedi. They're hiding there, and Saul finds out they are there. He goes there. David and his men are hiding in this cave. And as it turns out, as Saul and his men are passing by, Saul decides that he needs to stop for a potty break. I kid you not. It's in the text, all right? It talks about him going into the cave to relieve himself, all right? Even 3,000 years ago, nature called, all right? You had to do your work. And so, and of all of the places where Saul picks, all right, to do his work, all right, David and his men, well, they're hiding in this same cave, but David, or Saul doesn't realize it. And so Saul sneaks in there. He's not aware that David and his men are in there. Verse 4 tells us exactly what David's men want to do to Saul, Look at verse 4. It says, the men said, they're saying this to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands and you can deal with him as you wish. And so David's men are convinced that this is the moment they've been waiting for, that they've literally caught Saul with his pants down, all right? And so they're, they're like, David, this is your day. This is our moment. Let's take him out. Let's kill him once and for all. What did David do? Look at verse, the second half of verse 4. It says, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. See, David doesn't take his life, all right? But what we see here is he sneaks up and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe without Saul knowing about it. And David feels guilty about this. Now, why? Well, we don't have time to talk about that today, but let me just say there was real significance in the corner of your robe as a Jewish male, all right? The Bible talks about how they would tie their tassels to the corners of these robes. It was even more significant for a king, and so David has basically walked up. He's kind of stripped him of his identity, all right? He's cut off the corner of his robe, and so David's feeling guilty about this and about his actions here. Look at what happens next. Verse 6. David comes back to his men and he says, you know what? The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him. For you know what? He is the anointed of the Lord. Basically, he's in charge right now. It's not my responsibility until God desires to remove him. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Now, how, if you're David, can you miss an opportunity like this? I mean, it's not like he lacked courage. I mean, he took Goliath out, all right? So why would he be afraid in this moment? One thing is for sure. David's communicating a message with his actions here. Write this down. David resisted the urge to get ahead of God. I just really believe that David's holding back. He's resisting the urge to get ahead of God. I just ask you today, do you ever get tired of waiting on God? 
there anything in your life that you've prayed for? Is there anything that you've been hoping for? Do you ever, you ever just get exhausted? Do you ever get impatient? Do you ever get worn out waiting on God? I do. And I know the feeling. And you know, maybe for some of you today, it's, you, know, you feel like it's something you've been promised. Maybe something others have affirmed in you. Maybe, maybe you've got a dream. Maybe you've got a plan. Maybe you've got a desire that you've carried around with you for a really long time. And and if you're honest, you kind of feel like you deserve it. You know, you deserve this. You deserve these next steps. But you know what? Right now, maybe, maybe today things aren't going as planned. In fact, instead of moving forward, you actually feel like you're moving backwards right now. Here's what happens. The enemy likes to get involved too. All right, there is an enemy. His name is Satan. And he knows where we're weak. All right, he knows where I'm weak and where you're weak. And so every once in a while, what he'll do is he'll facilitate a way through or he'll show us a shortcut uh, to get what we think that we need or what we deserve. And, and he'll show us this way through. But, but doing so, if you think about it, if you're honest, it means getting ahead of God. And if you've ever been in a situation where you've been tempted to shortcut or maybe take somebody else out, you should be encouraged because David was there too. Like he had his chance to, to take the king out. And honestly, no one would have blamed him because this, by this point, Saul was so unpopular with the people that people, they, they would have thanked him. They would have celebrated David even more. But, and I just got to thinking about this this, this past week. Like I wonder if David almost gave in. I wonder if this was a real temptation for him because David's going to get another chance, similar to this one, to kill King Saul a few chapters later. And it just kind of makes me wonder if it was a real temptation for him and Satan knew it. But once again, David wouldn't because somehow, somehow in the midst of the chaos, David learned a valuable lesson of waiting on God. And so he just kept waiting instead of trying to get in front of him and trying to get in front of God. And apparently it was pretty attractive to the people that God had put around him because they remained loyal to him. Here's the thing. I don't know what it is for you this morning. I don't know what you're praying for, waiting on God for, where you may be tempted to cut corners or to just simply turn it in once and for all. Can I just say, don't give up on God just yet. He's not finished with you. Uh, he loves you, he, he cares for you, he cares for us deeply, and, and he might have you in a cave for some reason that you and I, that we may not realize, and, and he's only begun to reveal those truths about who he is and what he's capable of and, and what he wants to do in your life. See, David trusted God. You and I, we can trust God no matter the circumstances. Let's fast forward once more, once one more short story here, and, but just to catch you up, in case you're not familiar with this story, King Saul will eventually be killed by the enemies, by the Philistines, which meant that David should finally be king over all of Israel. But Saul's son, Ishbosheth, all right, try and say that five times real fast, Ishbosheth declared himself now to be king, which meant that David would have to wait another seven years before he would finally rule over all of Israel. Well, eventually, Ishbosheth was assassinated. And so finally, after 20 years of waiting and running and spelunking, all right, in caves, the time Time came for David to rule over Israel. And here's what's so interesting. This time, instead of just his family or even 400 distressed rebels coming out to him, look at what 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1 records. It says, All of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. 
In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will be my shepherd. You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. And so David had to be thinking, right? It's about time, you know? I mean, it's been 20 years since Samuel, you know, anointed me, he poured that stuff on my head and said that I was going to be king and... Well, instead of scheduling a parade, instead of scheduling a press conference, David did something that's pretty easy to overlook. Look at verse 3. It says, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron, get this, before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is so important. We can't afford to miss this here, that when David was finally given the opportunity to take his position as their king, notice that he chose to exercise his authority by making it clear that even as king, he was ultimately under the authority of the God of heaven. And he modeled this by making a covenant with the people that he would make every effort to lead the people as God directed him. And so what was it about David that drew people to him as their new king? I just think David wanted to be a different kind of leader. And they saw that. He modeled that with his life, that he wanted to be a different kind of leader for them. Now, does it mean that he was perfect? No, we're going to discover next week that David made many mistakes. But even in his mistakes, David made it clear that no matter what life threw at him, no matter how badly he messed up, he would always turn to God for wisdom and for strength and for courage, and for help, and for protection, and forgiveness. And if I could bring all this together before we close today, you know, if there's one lesson we can learn from his life, it would just simply be this, that David was communicating a very powerful message with his life. And what was the message? David was living for someone else. David was living under the authority of someone else. He was serving someone greater. He had a greater purpose and a greater desire for his life to serve God above anyone else. And because he lived for God and because he walked with God and because he trusted God and the good and the bad, people were drawn to him. And God continued to give him influence in this part of the land. But take note of this. Take note that David's influence wasn't the result of his position. All right? David's influence was the product of his obedience and his dependence on God. And there's a difference. And it was from this place of influence that God would use David to make his name great in the world. Again, David communicated a powerful message with his life. And you know who else? Just like David, another king would come on the world stage 1,000 years later after David and do the same. And we know him as Jesus, the greatest king that has ever lived. And Jesus was always communicating a message with his life. Like consider this, you know, think about the final week of his life and think about that Sunday, that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the people celebrated. They were ready to make him king. In fact, they tried to force Jesus' hand. They wanted him to be a different kind of king than Jesus had his mind set on and he could have. I mean, Jesus could have seized the throne in Israel and written a far different story the one that we're living in today. But for Jesus, again, he had a greater plan. And we see that demonstrated the night before he died when Jesus entered the upper room before his disciples and he got down on his knees and he took the position of a servant and he washed the feet of his disciples as a way of demonstrating his love 
and as a way of communicating a message with his life. And well, for Jesus, what was the message? It was Jesus' way of saying, you know what, I live for someone else. There is someone far greater than I am living for. And, and what we like to say here at Genesis is Jesus modeled for us a way to live. He's modeled for us a way to live our lives. And he, he showed us how life was meant to be lived. And he gave his life on the cross and he paid the ultimate price for sin with his life so that you and I, that we wouldn't have to. And so let me just ask you once more this morning, what, what message are you communicating with your life right now? What's the way that you're living right now say? What's it saying about what's most important to you? What's it saying about your faith? What's it saying about your outlook, about your purpose or your focus? Again, men, what, what message are you communicating with your life and the way that you love your wife, uh, the way that you love your children right now? <clears throat> What, what message are you communicating about the way that you do business, the way that you treat customers? What, what message are you communicating about your life and the way that you treat women that maybe are around you or work around you? Ladies, what message are you communicating right now with your life and the way that you love your husband and the way that you use your time and the way that you perform your work or the way that you speak about others, the way you demonstrate waiting on God and pri prioritizing your children, if you're, if you're single here this morning, what, what message are you communicating right now as you wait on God, as you, as you trust Him, as you find your purposes and what He has for you? And If you're dating, what, what message are you communicating in your relationship uh, as you wait on God and you, are your is your dating and your actions reflecting your trust in Him and your desire to serve and, and honor Him? Students, I know many of you are heading back to school this week. Like, what, what message do you intend to communicate with your life and the way that you treat others and the way that you serve and the way that you lead and the way that you model for, for others, the way that you respond to your teachers and to those that have been put in authority uh, around you at school? How does the way that you view your finances or your generosity reflect your faith and love for, your, love for God? Is, is your life communicating a message? that you're living for someone else, that you live for someone greater. David did in everything, ups and downs of life. Jesus did, and we're called to do the same. I want to look at this verse with you before we close, and then we'll pray, and the band's going to lead us in one final song. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which I think just speaks to this message that we're communicating with our lives. Peter writes, but you are a chosen people. All right, if you're in Christ Jesus today, if you've put your trust and your faith in him, that's you. All right, that's you and me. We are a chosen people, a distinct group, God's very own. He has us on this earth for a purpose. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Before Jesus, the priest had the responsibility to go before God on behalf of the people. But Jesus, well, he, he overturned the tables on that when he gave his life. Now through Jesus Christ, we can have direct access to God. We're this royal priesthood. We can go directly to God as followers of Jesus Christ, but we also, all right, we're also representatives for him here on this earth. We've got the responsibility of helping others find their way back to him. He says that you may, look, go back to that verse for a second. He says, as this royal possession, uh, the special, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let's declare those praises. 
Let's communicate this message that we serve someone greater. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your, your love. We thank you for your provision. Uh, and we thank you, Father, that you are the God of all things in the ups and downs and even in the chaos of life. And Father, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when we don't feel like we see you or see you working, Lord, we just thank you for this reminder today that you are there and that you love us and that you can lead us through no matter what we may face. And we thank you that there is a higher calling on our lives, Lord, to serve you even in the ups and downs of life. And so I pray you would give us strength today and wisdom and guidance in whatever we're facing. Encourage our hearts. Encourage our faith today as we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.